This morning we are in Acts chapter 9. Before we get into the text, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, help us as we examine this section of verses in the book of Acts that we will be reminded of your truth. We will be reminded of uh, your story. And uh, Lord, I pray you'll help us be uh, protected from being distracted from uh, error and uh, that we will be uh, drawn close in worship to you. Open our eyes to see these things and transform us by your spirit at work in us as we uh, consider uh, who you are and what you're about. So glorify yourself in our study. In your name I pray. Amen. We are in Acts chapter 9. We've been introduced to the one of the principal characters of Acts chapter 9 already. That principal character's early name was Saul. His later name is going to be Paul. It will be changed. Um, but it's important at this transitional point in the book of Acts that we are reminded of something very important before we actually get into the text. We're going to read the text in just a second. But especially as we get into this storyline that starts with Acts chapter 9, the conversion of Saul, and then continues into the rest, basically the rest of the book of Acts, which is uh, introducing us to his ministry. Obviously, we are reading about from here on out to the end of chapter 28, Paul's ministry as a believer, as a follower of Jesus Christ. It is very easy in reading the storyline to lose track of what's really going on. And so it's very important that we lay down some really important foundational groundwork before we get into the text itself. And that is this. It's very simple, but we need to, I need to be reminded of this all the time. Now, all, of, all of us, I'm convinced, need to be reminded. The story is not about Paul. If I may put it that, that bluntly. It is not about Paul. I know from chapter 9 all the way to the end of chapter 28, it's about Paul. I know that. I'm not pretending like that's not true. I'm just saying that it's not about Paul. In a very real way, he is an important player in the story. But as we know, Genesis chapter 1 all the way through Revelation chapter 22 is all about what has been described as the historical redemptive story of God. And it's very important that we keep our eyes on that focus. Here's the problem if we don't. The problem if we don't, we've already seen it in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 6, what's that about? Anybody remember? Without looking, that is. Quiz time. What's it about? Anybody? No, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's chapter 5. Stephen. It's about Stephen. And then it continues on uh, a little bit later, obviously. But we have chapter 6, Stephen's introduced. And then it flows immediately into the story of Stephen, right? And we know eventually ends up in the... The death of Stephen, right? The martyrdom of Stephen. It's very easy for us to look at the storyline and say, you know, it's the story of Stephen. And wow, wasn't he an amazing person? Isn't that easy to, to go that direction? And Stephen then ends up being the, what? The hero of the story. Correct? You go back earlier and Peter's the hero of the story. It seems like over and over and over again if you're not careful. And from here on out, we're going to find for the most part that the hero of the story, if we're not reading carefully, is Paul. He's the hero of the story. But he's not. As a matter of fact, I would argue if we were able to talk to Paul today, which we are not, obviously, but if we were, and if we were to say to him, Paul, wow, you are just such a hero I aspire to. Or if we said it to Stephen, 
I suspect we'd kind of get the reproofs that we heard earlier in the book of Acts. Because it's not about Paul. It wasn't about Stephen. It wasn't about Peter. And Peter will show up again in a few chapters. It's about Jesus. It always was and it always will be. Paul is in the storyline in a significant way. And not just in Acts chapter 9 through, uh, actually it shows up in 8, but 9 through 28, but in most of the epistles, they're written by Paul. So it would be very easy to say, my goodness, what a hero. And maybe even make it sound spiritual and say, what a hero of the faith. But he's not. The hero of the faith is the one who brought faith, who gives faith. The one who's the hero of the story is the one who laid his life down for the sheep. It's very important we keep that in mind. Because it's easy to lose that. Certainly there are lessons to be learned, important lessons to be learned, through this person, Saul, who becomes Paul. Very important. But he is not the hero at all. Nor would he aspire to that. So with that in mind, let's jump into the storyline starting in verse 1. And we are going to read uh, through to 19 this morning. And that's what we're going to work our way through this morning. So starting in verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision, uh, in a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in, at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind uh, all who call on your name. The Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands upon him said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. And he regained his sight, and he rose and was baptized. Then he, was ro he rose and he was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. And there's our text. 
this morning. It's an interesting text, probably familiar to, to many of you. There's a number of really interesting little tidbits in the story that are really important that in just the reading it's easy to miss. The first thing you notice right away, though, is in verse 9. And we're not going to have any nice outline here, but we're just going to walk through the text. But in verse, I'm sorry, verse 1 of chapter 9, it says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. It's an interesting statement. What makes it interesting is it's an incredibly descriptive statement about Paul, about Saul, I'm sorry. The earlier time we saw Saul was where? At Stephen's death, right? At his stoning. And what was Saul doing then? He was in absolute approval. We saw in the beginning of chapter 8. But what was he physically doing? He was holding and watching the coats, right? Yeah, he was holding and watching the coats. And why was he there in full approval? Because he hated the things of Christ. Let's be honest. He hated the things of Christ. And so in hating the things of Christ, he was there watching. He was a young man watching over the, the, um, the apparel of those who were actually physically stoning. The scriptures don't say he actually threw any stones against Stephen. However, between the stoning of Stephen and chapter 9, verse 1, everything is escalated. It is pretty clear between chapter, uh, the, the end of chapter, uh, end of chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 9, we've got somewhat of a gap. There's some time has gone by. Enough time that implication-wise in chapter 9, verse 1, is that a lot of the persecution that's come upon Christians in Jerusalem has been orchestrated by who? None other than Saul. Saul is the one who has been persecuting, and by the way, we discover here and later on in the book of Acts now that not only was he persecuting as in arresting, but he's arresting them for the purpose of killing them. He's been in the process of killing them as well as throwing them into prison. Ultimately, his goal is to annihilate them. And he's done a really good job of it, because all we know of at this point in time that are remaining in Jerusalem are who? The apostles themselves. Now, there's probably some small group still there, but the ones we know about are the apostles. What's happened to everybody else? They've been scattered by the pressure of Saul's persecution. But what do we find about Saul? Is he satisfied with what he's accomplished? No. Chapter 9, verse 1 makes it really clear. This has not satiated his absolute hatred. Quite to the contrary, but saw still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. In other words, it hasn't satisfied him at all. To the point that, if you could picture it, it's like a rabid dog. You get the picture, don't you? I mean, it's almost like he's frothing at the mouth. He is so angry. He's breathing, his very breath is all about, and the idea of his, he's breathing threats is the idea that, that, that the heartbeat of his life is this. Now, obviously it's verbal, but the actual heartbeat of his life is the destruction of this thing called Christianity and any connection with Christ, including the people. He's at war, and this is an out-and-out out war. You don't see that much in our world, do you? I, I want to be honest with you. We don't see it that much in our world today. But you know why, I would argue? 
And I'm not going to get into condemnation. I, I, it's more the idea of it's comfortable to keep it underneath it all today for the lost world in our, in our world, in our Christian, supposedly, let me change that, post-Christian society in America. It's very easy for lost people to keep it under the, the radar screen. But you know what? Even today, if you start dialogue with unsaved people and you really start preaching the gospel, you know what you find? Guess what you find? If the Spirit's not working in people's lives, you know what starts to happen? The hatred starts to come out. It's there. Don't miss the point. This is the picture of Saul, but that's just a picture of unsaved people. What did Jesus say? They hated me, they'll what? How much did they hate Jesus? What's that? To the point of death. Absolutely, they, they crucified him. They hated him. They despised him and rejected him. That's right. That's right. So it's important that we recognize that Jesus, when he said that, he put, he put the hatred of them, of him, on the same scale as the hatred that his followers would receive. Same scale, same level. And I have found it to be the case repeatedly when I talk to people about Jesus, that's exactly what happens. If the Spirit is not at work in their life, if the Holy Spirit is not moving, what happens? They hate you. They mock you. They ridicule you. They, they marginalize you. Now, they can't kill you today because they can't go get a, a letter, right? They, go, they can't go get a letter to kill you. But if you go outside of the American society, you can find that even to this day. It's everywhere. It's all over. The persecution is raging. It always has been, always will be till the return of Christ. But Saul, still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And again, being brought bound to Jerusalem is to be brought back to the heart of where the persecution and hatred and death is. That's what Saul is asking to do. He wants to bring them back for the purpose of their imprisonment and eventual death. He gets the letter. Once he gets the letter, verse 3, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. So he's getting really close to Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now some have argued this statement by God, by Jesus, actually we find out a little bit Jesus God, uh, because Jesus is God, is a, a statement of anger. Other people argue it's, it's more compassionate. Why are you doing this? I, I don't know. I can't read that into the text. But is it, what's interesting, when Jesus speaks and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It, by the way, isn't it interesting? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting the followers? Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say, Saul, why are you persecuting my followers? Why are you persecuting those who have received me? He says, why are you persecuting me? Why do you think that is? I'm just going to open it up to you. Question. Question and answer time. Why do you think Jesus says to Saul, why are you persecuting me? Okay, that's part of it because the Spirit is in them. That's part. Got to go forward into, into more of Paul's writings later on, theologically. Why do you think it is? 
And, and you see it also back in, in the Gospels, right? The whole idea of being what? Being grafted into the vine, right? We are grafted. Who's the vine? Jesus is the vine. So if they're persecuting Jesus' followers, are they not therefore persecuting Christ? Colossians chapter 3, what does he say? If you then be risen with Christ, what? Seek those things which are above where Christ is, see at the right hand of God, and then verse 2, set your minds on things, not on things on the earth. Why? Verse 3, for you have, anybody remember? What's the next word? Died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And at the end, when He is revealed, you will what? Be revealed with Him. And how could you not be? Because you're in Him. You're united with Him. It's a common theme throughout the New Testament. This being unified with Him. It's identity terms. Your identity when you are saved ceases being, my identity ceases being Steve. The fun-loving, whatever. It becomes what? Jesus. What did John the Baptist say? I must increase or decrease? Decrease. And he must increase. Same idea. Identity becomes Jesus. So Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? That's totally confusing to Saul. Right? He responds and says, who are you, Lord? Now, get the setting. Elsewhere, later in the book of Acts, it describes, Paul describes the story of his conversion as taking place at noon. So this is not nighttime with a blinding light. This is noon with a blinding light. It is so bright, the light is so bright that he can't miss it and the others can't miss it. The ones who are with him, however many, are going with him to persecute and capture and eventually kill Christians. He falls on his face, and they, according to later in, in the chapter, or later in the, in, the books, in, the, in the book of Acts, fall on their face as well. In, why would they fall on their face? Fear. And Saul responds and says, Who are you, Lord? Now, a lot of people have said over the years that the, he chooses the word Lord not to ref, reference God, but quite to the contrary, to reference it as a term of respect for uh, someone else. And certainly there are places where the word Lord is used for that. I don't believe for a second that's the case in this scenario. Remember, it's noon. Massively bright, horribly bright, wiltingly bright. Light shines upon him from heaven, the scriptures say. He is so terrified that he falls on his face. And all those around him do as well. And Saul is a, a scholar. He knows the Old Testament. His response when he says, Who are you, Lord? is nothing more than a different way of saying, Identify yourself. Specifically. It sounds a little bit like Moses. When I go to them, they say, Who sent you? Who should I say that sent me? And he says, I am. Right? It's just another way of saying the same thing. Saul is like, is absolutely convinced that God is now speaking to him. This is God speaking to him, and he's asking God to identify himself. He knows all the Old Testament names for God. 
He's asking him to identify himself. He doesn't choose to answer that way, does he? He doesn't say, I am, like would be very appropriate. He doesn't say it. He doesn't throw out any other names that he could have possibly throw out that are legitimate Old Testament names to his Old Testament scholar. What does he do? I am Jesus. And in so doing, when you combine Saul's question, who are you, Lord? Jesus says, I am Jesus. And saying to Saul, Jesus is Lord. That's exactly what he's communicating. Jesus is Lord. <clears throat> I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And again, he, what does he do? He makes it very personal. You are coming against God himself. Now I'm sure at this point in time, Saul was a little bit undone. You think? I suspect he was kind of um, maybe even experiencing a little bit of an I Isaiah chapter 6 experience. Woe is me, for I am undone. <laughs> right? I mean, it makes sense. Because all that Saul at this point in time can expect is what? Death. That's all he can expect. He has hated the Redeemer, the Messiah. He has rejected the one who was sent. He has fully endorsed his death. He's fully endorsed the deaths of all of his followers. He has killed and partnered in the death of his followers. He can expect only one thing, and that is death. What does Jesus say next? Verse 6, But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. <laughs> There's still hope. Can I just throw this out there? It's not really an aside, but what an amazing text. I have dealt with in my 60, almost 61 years of life, and um, over 40 years of full-time ministry, I've dealt with many people who claim to be believers who feel absolutely hopeless because of what do you think? The way they've lived. The way they've, the choices they've made. The decisions they've made, the paths they've walked, the relationships they've been involved in, whatever the case may be, they just feel absolutely hopeless, like they're in an absolutely hopeless situation. I love taking this passage. Now we say the same thing. Have you killed Christians? Have you pursued and persecuted Christians? Well, that doesn't make you hopeless. Have you fully endorsed the death of Jesus? That doesn't make you hopeless. Because it wasn't hopeless for Saul, was it? When the Spirit moves and the Spirit calls, all that stuff means what? It means absolutely nothing. Actually, it means more than nothing. Better than nothing. Here's what it really means. All those things become bookmarks of God's grace in your life. That's what they are. They're bookmarks of God's grace. 
Paul looks back on his life later on and says, all those things that I counted as so valuable, I count them as dung in light of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. In other words, those bookmarks are bookmarks of God's grace in his life and they help him to see the beauty of God's grace so much greater. I look at all this and I look at this and the contrast between this and this is so stunning that I just want more of Christ. That's what happens for Paul as the storyline builds. And of course, that's because of the Spirit's work in his life. So Jesus says to him, get up, enter the city, the city being Damascus, and you'll be told what you are to do. So, so the men who were traveling with him stood speechless. So whether that stood speechless means they got back up off their feet or if they stood as in they were completely speechless. Could be neither one. I only say that because later on the text it says they fell down as well in 22 or 26 of, chap of the book of Acts. Um, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Interestingly enough, they didn't lose their eyesight, did they? They can still see. And what are they doing? They're looking around. Like, where's this voice coming from? Saul's just like, Lord, right? Who are you? They're just looking around. But they don't see anyone because, of course, this is a voice from heaven. Saul, verse 8, rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So he's blinded. And by the way, I don't think for a second, although some people would argue this, I don't think for a second that his blindness that he's experiencing is because of the, the physical light. This is something physical, because later on it'll say that the scales fell off. So something physical was going on with his eyes. That being said, I think that's all caused spiritually. This is not, I'm blinded because of the light. Because certainly the other ones weren't. They guided him. <clears throat> the blindness is probably more some sort of metaphor for his blindness spiritually. But it's real. He is blind <clears throat> at this point. So Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither drank or ate nor drank. Now there's a couple ways to understand verse 9. He's there for three days <clears throat> waiting. And we find out he's at, this, at, at Judas's house, not Judas Iscariot. He's gone. Just wanted to clarify that. But this Judas Judas's house, and um, he's there for three days. The three days that are being referenced here is probably a three days as the Hebrew calendar worked. Any part of a day would be considered a day. So just like with Jesus' crucifixion, any part of Friday would be Friday. All of Saturday and part of Sunday would be three days. Does that make sense? It doesn't mean three total 24-hour days in the case of, of Jesus' um, uh, death and burial, just like it doesn't mean three days as in three absolute 24-hour days. It's just a part of each day is a day. So it could be as little as the by the time he got to Jerusalem, evening of that day, all the next day, and somewhat of the next day. Does that make sense? So it could be anywhere from maybe 48 hours and a little longer. The reason why I point that out to you is because they, the, the, um, or maybe even a little less than 48 hours, um, science or med the medical world will tell you if you don't drink for three days, you die. Now, Jesus could have, obviously, God could have kept him alive for three days, even though he's not drinking. Um, but most likely, it's a part of that day, 
all the next day and a part of the next day is the three days being referenced here. In any case, it is interesting. We, it, we, we discover now again a change in his, in his perspective, don't we? He, how do you start out? How do you start out this, this chapter? Breathing threats, of murder. Breathing threats of murder. And then suddenly Jesus appears to him and speaks to him out of heaven and, his, and, and suddenly his demeanor changes, right? Just a little bit. Who are you, Lord? And then he shows up in, in Judas' home in, in, in Damascus. And what is he doing? He's not eating or drinking. He's fasting. Now we're going to discover in a little bit, he's not just fasting from eating and drinking, but he's also doing something else. What is it? He's praying. You sense a little change here? Now this, is because, this isn't, again, Paul's not the hero, right? It's because the Spirit's at work in his life. Every aspect of his life shows one direction up to this point in time, hasn't it? It's all being driven by one thing and one thing only. Christ and all that Christ stands for, this must be wiped off from the, the surface of this earth. And suddenly he meets Christ in a different way. And we can't miss it. He probably, I'm sure, being that he was in Jerusalem, he had to have run into Jesus repeatedly. He had to have. In Jesus' ministry. I mean, he was always in the temple. And then Jesus would regularly come to the temple. I suspect he was there for his judgment. It wouldn't surprise me. He was part of the group. He was there, I can almost guarantee it, at, at the cross. Of course he would be there in the leadership positions he's in. So he's had plenty of opportunity to meet Jesus, but then he meets Jesus. And when he really meets Jesus, everything changes. He goes from breathing absolute hatred from the very core of his being to crying out to Jesus. And the very next thing we see is when Jesus says, go, he does what? He goes. If, if, if you were walking along a road and you lost your eyesight, wouldn't you go back to where you know? And ask your friends to take you back to where you know? He goes, where? Where Jesus told him to go. When he gets there, for three days... Without sight, and he eats. He doesn't eat or drink. Verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, that is, a believer, a follower of Jesus. The Lord appears to him, that is, Jesus appears to him in a vision. Ananias, he said, and he said, Here I am, Lord. Interesting statement. Yeah, can I just stop for a second as an aside? I just want to pause on this for a second, because we have a lot of this interaction between Jesus speaking, Saul, Jesus speaking, vision, Ananias. It's very easy. I hear this quite regularly. People say, wow. Wouldn't that have been amazing to actually have Jesus actually speak to you? Wouldn't that be amazing if Jesus just really actually appeared in a vision to you? Oh, wouldn't that be amazing if you were just walking down a road and boom, there's Jesus talking to you? I've actually heard Christians say this, man, my faith would be so strong if that would happen. I look at it and say, really? That's not what the scriptures say. 
Second Peter chapter one. Again, an aside, but an important one. Second Peter chapter one. Peter, you heard me talk about before. He talks about that he was actually not just walking with Jesus. He avoids even the discussion that he walked with Jesus and was taught by Jesus. He goes right to the core event. I was there on the Mount of Transfiguration. I saw it when Jesus was transfigured. And it was amazing. But his next words are what? You have the word of God more sure, to which you do well to pay attention to. God has spoken. Jesus has spoken. How long should we pay attention to the word of God? Till the day dawns. That is, till he returns. And then we'll just have him. But till that point in time, he says, the word of God is more sure than what? Any experience, no matter even if it is a mount of transfiguration experience, the word of God is more sure. Is it cool that Saul had Jesus appear to him? Yeah. Was it cool later on? Paul hangs out with him for three and a half years out in the wilderness? Yeah, that's pretty cool. Was it amazing that Ananias had Jesus appear to him in a vision? Yeah. That's pretty amazing. But that's not the point of the story. If we think about Ananias, what's interesting about Ananias, the story of Ananias and the vision is really interesting. In the vision, the Lord Jesus says, Ananias, and Ananias says, Here am I, Lord. His response, I'm here. I'm listening. I'm there. Right? And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the, the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has a vision, he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So Jesus tells Ananias what? Simply summed up, go to the street called Straight, Saul of Tarsus is there, lay your hands on him, and he'll get his sight back. He's prepared. Is that what Jesus said? He's looking for you. Not looking with his eyes, but he's waiting for you because I told him that you'd be coming. Now, your thoughts would probably be the same as Ananias's, wouldn't it? Because the response, verse 13, But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much evil is done to your saints at Jerusalem. W wait a second, Jesus. I know about this Saul of Tarsus. He's murdered Christians. He's a fire-breathing Christ-hater and disciple-hater. And he's hunting them down and he's killing them. I've heard, it's very clear, and the implication, I even hear he's coming here to do the same exact thing. Because he says in verse 14, And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. So he knows what's coming. Verse 15, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for, my name, for the sake of my name. You go, I prepared him for this. He's prepared. And what happens? Verse 17, simply put, so Ananias what? Departed and entered the house. Could I just pause on this one for a second? Just like 
Paul is not a hero, neither is Ananias. But I want us, it's very important, this is the instructive things that we find in this text. I want us to recognize something. First, Ananias is called what? He's called a, a disciple, right? A follower, a learner. He, he belongs to Jesus. And Jesus speaks to him and tells him one of the worst messages he thinks he can receive. Right? I want you to go to the guy who is coming here to kill everybody. I want you to go where he is. <laughs> Lay your hands on him. So he can re re receive his sight back. And I said, wait a second, back up the horses. That makes sense to me. That's the same guy that was killing everybody. Yeah, I'd, I'd, ra I'd rather he didn't, wasn't able to see. Right? I'd rather he wasn't able. And, and Jesus says, no, here's the total picture. I've chosen him. I've elected him. He belongs to me. And he will glorify me. And he will praise my name. And he will spread my fame to the Gentiles and even to the Jews and to kings. And he does, doesn't he? We know the story. And so Ananias does what? He gets up and goes. You know, it's really interesting. He didn't say, it, the scriptures don't record that he said, well, okay, I hear what you're saying, but I think I'm going to pray on that one for a little while. I, I think I, I, I need to read more of the scriptures to see if that works. He didn't say, I'll tell you what, I'm going to put out a fleece, and if you make the one side wet, then, then we're good to go. He doesn't do that, does he? He doesn't do any of that. It's really simple. He just It's recorded by Luke what? He just departed and went. He didn't do the Jonah thing. God didn't have to send a whale. I'm sorry, a large fish. He didn't do any of that. He just departed and went. What do you think would cause Ananias to just depart and go there to the street called Straight? Why do you think he would? I heard two things. I heard faith and I heard the Spirit. Could I just merge those things together a little bit? You know why he went? It's really simple. Here's why he went. Because he had received the Spirit with power. Acts 1.8. What did Acts 1.8 say? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be what? Witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And here's Ananias. He may very well be one of the, uh, of the dispersed ones from Jerusalem. We don't know. Or he may be someone who got saved being a Damascusite. Because we don't know anything about Ananias. But he had the Spirit. The Spirit had come upon him with power. And the result is that when Jesus tells him to go, certainly he first responds, wait, isn't that, isn't that Saul of Tarsus who's killing Christians? Yeah, i got a plan for him. Okay. Now again, we go back to what I just said. It's really easy to say, yeah, but Steve, 
God actually told him in a vision. And what do we see in 2 Peter chapter 1? You have the word of God, what? More sure. And what does the word of God say about evangelism? What's that? It's his work. There's absolutely the case, but what about our role? What does he say about, about we just saw it, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, right? Yeah, there's another passage, or Matthew chapter 28, right? As you're going what? Make disciples. And by the way, I'll give you the Spirit with power. Make disciples, right? Baptizing and teaching. It's just an interesting dynamic that we see in Ananias what? That whole thing lived out in an instant, don't we? Because when the Spirit's on Ananias, with power, he presents the concern, certainly, and Jesus points out, well, I've got a plan for him. And his response is, okay. You get a sense that for, for Ananias, it's like, well, if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out, that's life. But God wants me to go, I'm going to go. And we, it's interesting because today we have what? We have the Word of God more... Sure, and the word of God more sure says what? Make disciples, for example. It's an amazing picture. Now, that's, uh, please don't miss my point. I'm not at all saying, well, because God commands it, you better do it. That's not the point. We've said that so many times before. The, the point is more, why isn't the Spirit working my life that way if he's not? Why isn't he working that way? Because he says he will. Is the spirit a liar? Is God a liar? No. So what's going on? I say that because maybe it's different for you, but I talk to Christians all the time. I run into Christians everywhere I go, and I talk to them, and I start asking questions like, you know, about their ministry, about evangelism. And you know what I find? Most people can't even remember the last time they shared the gospel with an unsaved person. You see, today, too often, it, it, not like Ananias, what we find instead is we find Christians, people who claim to be believers, what we find instead is that we know what the Scriptures say, but what do we do instead? We say, well, yeah, I don't have the time right now. Or, or the risk is too high. I don't think they're really going to believe. Yeah, I don't think that'll happen. Fear of what may happen if I do that then. And I conjure up all sorts of possible scenarios of what may happen if I don't. Where does that come from? Is that coming from the Spirit, do you think? Is that coming from the Spirit? or is that I, I hear you, Tom, the fear of man, but is that coming from the Spirit or from the evil Spirit? Is it coming from the, from the Holy Spirit or, or the Spirit of darkness? The Spirit of darkness, why would I fear man? Why would I fear man if I'm fearing God? Are they not mutually exclusive? Now, I know we're all growing, but, but the point I'm trying to make is, as Paul said, because I know the fear of the Lord, I what? Persuade men. You don't hear in his statement, do you? Well, I have a fear of the Lord, but I also have a fear of man. And I struggle with that. Do you hear that there? No, he says two verses earlier, the love of Christ controls me. Two verses later, because I know the fear of the Lord, I persuade men. That's what you hear. 
But that's not what's heard today. And I find that really concerning. I don't, I, I don't hear that today. I don't hear God saying, not in a vision or appearing, but through the word, to proclaim the word, and people say, okay, and go. That's not what I see. Quite to the contrary, here's what typically happens. People hear it, they feel a little guilty about it, but then they go on and do whatever they want to do. That's what happens. And ultimately, we have to ask ourselves a question about that, don't we? Ultimately, we have to ask the question, what is the fruit being displayed? Don't we? I mean, ultimately, don't we have to ask ourselves, what if the scriptures say that people will bear fruit, and that doesn't mean people are saved. It means that they're glorifying Christ. Fruit isn't that you led a bunch of people to Christ. And look at the numbers. But is there fruit? See, it's easy to say I'm a Christian. Isn't it? It's really easy to say it. Is there fruit? Is the fruit evident? And is it growing? And are they being pruned? Because whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Are they being pruned? Here we have Ananias, someone who has a spirit, and the result is what? He goes. And I want to, before I get off of the verse, I want you to notice, he's not going to his best friend, is he? He's not going to his, his favorite uncle, is he? He's not going to um, the, the, the friend, his best friend he grew up with all his life, is he? To give him another piece of truth. <laughs> or the most important truth there is. He's going to someone he knows absolutely hates everything about what he stands for. He's going to someone who he knows has the authority. The moment he walks in that door, the authority is in his pocket if their togas had pockets. He has the letter of authority that the moment he begins to open his mouth, he can be put in chains and hauled back to Jerusalem. And this man, Ananias, does what? He goes. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul. Isn't that interesting how he addresses him? That word's important, isn't it? This is a first word mentioned. All he knows about Saul is what? He's killing Christians, persecuting Christians, hauling them back to Jerusalem. It's all he knows about them, except that God said, I have chosen him. And so he walks in, walks up to Saul, lays his hands on Saul, and addresses him as a brother. Isn't that incredible? I find that stunning. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So what does it say next? And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. And then the last, last two lines of my text are, I find really intriguing. If you hadn't eaten or drinking in three, in, drinking? Drank in three days, 
I like making up words. <clears throat> if you haven't eaten or drank in three days, what would be first on your mind? Dinner? Water? Or some sort of liquid? What was first on his mind? Baptism. He arose and was baptized. He wanted one thing and one thing only. He wanted to be identified with Jesus. He wanted more than anything else, Jesus. And then taking food, he was strengthened. Isn't it interesting studying contrast between chapter 9, verse 1, and chapter 9 at the end there? Chapter one, chapter 9, verse 1, he just wants to kill Christians. He just wants to persecute Christians. He's foaming at the mouth almost. At the very end of the storyline, what does he want? I want to be identified with Christ. I want to be identified with Christ more than anything. Yes, same thing. We saw the previous chapter. Absolutely. And it is interesting, if I may go back up a few verses, it's interesting that Jesus told Ananias, I'm going to show him how he's going to suffer for my name. That's kind of interesting as well. I skipped over it, but we don't have really any time to probe into that. But it is interesting. He's going to do what? To cause people to suffer. And now he's going to what? Suffer. Before he found Christ worthless. Now he finds Christ of absolute value. You get the sense, don't you, especially as we know the storyline, that for Saul, by the Holy Spirit, what changed for him? If I may sum it up this way. What changed for him is he discovered the pearl of great price. What, dis what changed for him is he discovered an amazing treasure buried in a field. And the result was that everything changed. 180 degrees. Causing to suffer to being gloriously willing and joyfully willing to suffer for the sake of Jesus. From here on out, the Spirit is working so mightily in his life. That's the change that takes place in salvation when we are saved. What we once valued, we no longer value. Isn't that exactly what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3? The very things I thought most valuable to me, now I consider them but rubbish for the sake of Christ. It's, it's about value. I was dialoguing with somebody this week, claims to be a believer, and she says, I don't proselytize. And my response to her was, well, yeah, you do. Yeah, you do proselytize. Because she wasn't evangelizing, she wasn't proclaiming Christ, she was proclaiming all sorts of political stuff. And it was just obnoxious, the amount of hate and vitriol. And I said, yeah, you actually, you do proselytize. You're just not proselytizing about Christ. You're proselytizing about something else. We can't help but proselytize, right? We can't help it. You're, you're caught up in your religion and you've deceived yourself into thinking your religion is Jesus. But it's not. 
It's this other thing. In her case, it was politics. And she's working diligently to proselytize with regard to the politics. Christ? No, I don't, I don't proselytize. Oh, well, when the Spirit comes with power, you know what you do? You know what you do? You proselytize. And you know what happens? The things of this earth will what? Begin to grow strangely dim in, in light of what? His glory and grace. That's what happens. Is that not what happened with Saul? And that's not Saul, that's the Spirit. Is that not happening unless we miss the point? It's not just, wow, that's great, Paul, Paul, the super apostle, look what he did. No, that's not just Paul, is it? Saul, then Paul, Ananias, isn't it? I mean, that's not just Ananias, is it? It's also Stephen, isn't it? Right? And, and earlier, it was a blind man. Not just Stephen and Saul and Ananias, it's Philip. You get, you, get, you get a theme going here? Do you see it? Because it all links back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. When the Spirit comes upon you with power, what's going to happen? You will. It's a promise, not a command. He's not commanding you to go, whether it's Matthew 28 or Acts 1. He's not commanding you to go. He's He's saying, this is what will happen. This is what happens when the Spirit is on us with power. Christ is glorified. Christ is magnified. Lives are changed. The kingdom of God is on display. Your kingdom come your will be done in my life as it is in heaven. Amen? That's the point. Let's pray, shall we? And pray that, that the Spirit will be at work with us and that the Lord will open our hearts and open our eyes to see what in the world is going on in our lives. And what is the hindrance or hindrances that are holding us back. What I mean by that is what, what we need to repent of. And to repent and believe, as the scriptures tell us, over and over again. Shall we pray? Lord, help us. We recognize that Ananias and Saul are not, and later Paul, are not our heroes. <clears throat> you are, because Saul could never have been this apart from your spirit working in his life. Ananias would have never, ever gone to Saul apart from your working in his life. And the other one we just get glimpses of, Judas would have never allowed him in your house if it wasn't for your spirit at work. We desperately need you. We desperately need you to change us, to help us to realize the truth, to motivate us, to change our desires and our fears. We need you to work in our lives so that we will taste and see that you are good.
We need you to work in our lives and bring us to the fountain of living water. We need you to work in our lives so that we cease and desist the digging of cisterns that can hold no water. We need you. So we ask you to work in our lives and change us for your glory. In your name I pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing, shall we?